Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to ABG, a podcast for the modern day Asian American woman. My name is Helen. I'm Janet. And it's Mel. Hi, everyone. Um, Today's actually a very special day for us. It's the first time we're having a female guest on our podcast. She is an Asian-American woman that has been using her creative abilities to really make an impact on this world. Welcome, Krista Sa, a feminist, an artist, a Hollywood screenwriter, the creator of the Pussy App Project, and author of DIY Rules for a WTF World. Uh, for those in our audience who are following the Women's March movement, you may have noticed the bright pink hats that many people were wearing at the 600-plus rallies around the world. Well, Krista is the individual responsible for creating and distributing the design and essentially empowering millions of people around the world to make and wear this symbol of solidarity in support of women's and human rights. So welcome, Krista. Welcome for joining us. Thank you so much. (laughs) I'm so excited to be here. Okay, so we're just going to jump right in because we have a lot of questions for you today. Um, So I know you've detailed on your website and in your book, but uh, for those who are listening and maybe are not as familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about the Pussy Hat Project and how you came up with the idea? Sure. Um, I was really devastated by the results of the election in 2016. I was fully ready for our first woman president. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you guys remember that night how like shocking it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember going to bed thinking like, oh my God, this can't be happening. I was really devastated, really demoralized. But that same week, news of the Women's March came up and I knew um, I would go just mm-hmm. immediately. I was trying to figure out what I could do. Like, was there something more I could do than just show up? What could I wear? What sign could I hold up? Just thinking really visually because one photograph nowadays can change the world. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. one visual. Right. Backing up a second, I was really proud of myself because I was so fueled. I was like, damn, like, I would march naked for this. <laughs> like, you know, like, I'm really committed. But, you know, there was no, like, meaning to being naked. So I was like, okay, okay. And then I had kind of this gentle, teasing voice come up that voice was like okay Krista maybe you would march naked in LA in January I don't know if you're gonna march naked Mm. in DC in January (laughs) right Um, I don't know about you guys but I grew up in Southern California like pretty much all my life I never checked the weather so I was like oh yeah I have to actually dress for cold Mm. so you know that meant like a winter coat and like gloves and a scarf and a hat and I thought oh I can knit my own hat and that's something that I had been really obsessed with at the time knitting Mm -hmm. so that felt right like I could make my own protest gear with my own hands so you did the opposite of going naked yes (laughs) I got really warm and cozy actually yeah that just felt so meaningful you know Mm -hmm. and really empowering that like oh like not only can I make a statement I could really make it like literally and I also thought of the American flag uh, was made by Betsy Ross right Mm. with her own two hands and 
in some ways, that's our nation's first piece of protest gear, and it was mm. made by a woman. So I was like, oh my mm. God, this is it. There's something to it. My next thought, it was really, it was that lightning bolt moment. It was like, oh, like, I'm a beginner knitter. Mm-hmm. If I can make this hat, anyone could. Mm-hmm. And that's when it went from one to many. Like, I could see a sea of pink at the march, and that felt really, like, I was just so jazzed. Do you know when you have a great idea? And I immediately texted my friend Kat, who owns a yarn store, and she knows how to make patterns and all this. Um, She teaches me how to knit and crochet. I texted her immediately with like all caps, all these emojis. I was like, I just had the best idea ever. You have to help me. Oh my God. And so when I got back to the store, uh, we got started and we really spread it. So it, it was a way to capture all the feelings I had in a communal way. And how did you even have the idea to like start, like who did you reach out to in DC to start like distributing your um, your manifesto in terms of like how to actually knit this? Great question. I, Kat was actually um, an amazing resource in many ways because she's really plugged into the crafting community. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people like feel like it came out of nowhere, but anyone who's done like crafting or knitting or crocheting sewing like they're like oh like of course this happened because women um like I didn't reinvent the wheel there's already a community of crafters out there and I kind of just asked them if they'd be willing to be craftivist for this march so your friend was already kind of plugged into that community like was she in uh, like different social media like groups yeah I mean you guys uh, um like spools people over there's a whole different social media platform you could call it just for knitters it's called Ravelry and there's eight million people on it (laughs) what's the Um, demographic age demographic of that I don't know but actually on my book tour um I go to all the different uh, all these different yarn stores that were part of the movement Mm -hmm. and um I would say like a lot of the women who go to these events are women in their 50s or 60s. Right, yeah. So um, a lot of older women are a part of it. Um, I get emails from older women, and I love it because any woman over the age of, like, 65 always like to tell me their age. Like, I'm a 70-year-old black woman, and I wore a pussy. <laughs> I was like, I'm an 80-year-old um, Minnesotan, and I made 70 pussy hats or something. You know, just like, like they always state their age. It's so cool. That's true, because you, you have, like, this group of people who are retired, Some most yeah. of, a lot of them, yeah. who have this, like, yeah. passion for knitting. And here you are, you're like, I need an army of people to just help me knit this and, like, distribute it. Well, also, yeah. knitters just really... And I when I say knitters, I kind of am, like, yarnies or just all these people who um craft and knit um knitters just really love to help like I don't know if any of you guys have ever received a handmade gift from a knitter they love giving out what they make and like clothing people and sheltering people with that Mm -hmm. so it was it's like a really human basic instinct I think um that I asked them to apply this time toward um the women's movement I didn't have to like teach people how to come together to do this because it's not like I had to like send all out all these emails like, hey guys, like get together with your friends and um, sew hats and talk about the issues because there's already such thing as a stitch and bitch. So, nice. um, oh. <laughs> so I didn't have to invent that. Um, another thing I did not have to invent is like, hey guys, when you're like starting to make your pussy hat, maybe like take a picture and put it on social media to spread the word because there's already such thing as like casting on. Casting on is when you start. Mm -hmm. And then so people be like, I'm casting on for this project. It's like I did not have to like ask them to do that. They just did that on their own. That's so Um, cool. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the cool thing about it too is that it is really simple. Like, you know, I keep talking about knitters, but this is really about women's rights supporters who took part, whether they were making them, wearing them, spreading Mm -hmm. the word. And making them was something that uh, you could learn how to do, Mm -hmm. like, in those two months, you Mm -hmm. know? And a lot of people learned how to knit for the first time. That is an amazing backstory. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the design, the specific design of the hat itself, and then how you, how that kind of arrived? Yeah, a lot of people think, like, oh, it's a pussy hat, it's anti-Trump, right? And um, I think people have this idea that we went through Trump's greatest hits, like the worst things he said, and just like, mm-hmm. how do we react to that in a clever mm-hmm. way? But that, it actually was way more organic than that. So uh, when I got to uh, the yarn store and went over things with Kat and other people at, in the store, the first thing we decided on was the color. The color is pink, 
I think we did discuss like, mm, should it be purple? Should it be this? But ultimately, I really wanted to embrace the fact that it was feminine mm-hmm. because I think no matter what color uh, we chose, if it was considered feminine, it'd be considered weak or lesser. You know, I we got a lot of criticism, you know, from people who were, uh, I call them the dignity crew. Mm. They were like, no, 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 we can't wear pink. We need something more dignified. How about these like blue... Um, baseball caps made in China. We could all buy these and wear them. I'm like, oh, I don't think you get it. Like, yeah. (laughs) And after I dropped pre-med, I became an art history major. And so I can tell you that a couple hundred years ago, it was actually totally reversed. Blue was the color of women Mm -hmm. and pink was the color of men. Blue was feminine, of course, because it was oceanic and demure and calm and peaceful Mm. and the virgin mary always wore blue robes and it was a very expensive color to make whereas men were uh red and pink was the offshoot of red right so and they were like fiery and uh warlike and blood and gore Mm -hmm. and all these things so it was like tough so Mm -hmm. obviously pink was for men right Mm -hmm. obviously i say (laughs) and then uh so i guarantee you that if that was still the case today um, if we wore blue pussy hats, people would be like, oh my God, can't you do something more dignified like pink? You know, right, so it doesn't right. matter what color is associated with women. Whatever is associated with women right now is considered lesser. And I wanted to like throw that into like under the spotlight and question mm-hmm. that and run right into it. Mm-hmm. So it was pink. Uh, secondly, it was cat ears. And it actually came from more of a design place at first where. I just really wanted a different silhouette. I don't know if you guys have do a lot of networking in your jobs, but if I go to a networking event and I know everyone's going to wear pantsuits, I'll wear a dress. And it is, it's not because it's more feminine or whatever. It's because it stands out because of the silhouette. Mm-hmm. Whereas everyone's going to wear dresses, I'm going to wear like, you know, a suit, you yeah. know, a pantsuit. So um, it's just a really great, easy way to stand out because... I think more than color, more than print, your eye is drawn to different lines. Right. Yeah. So I really wanted cat ears instead of like the normal sort of beanie with a pom pom on top. Mm-hmm. But when I asked cat, like, look, I want it to be really easy to make. And because I see beanies with pom poms on top everywhere, I guess that's the easiest thing to make. So I'm willing to let go of the cat ears because I don't want people to spend extra time making cat ears. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, no, cat ears are the easiest thing to make. So I was like, oh, my God. Like, it's just so meant to be. Um, So it was pink, cat ears, and the last thing was the name. And so just like, you know, I didn't want to be naked without meaning. I didn't want it to be cat ears without meaning. So I asked the people in the yarn store, like, all right, like, what is the meaning behind cat ears? Hmm. And it was silent, silent, silent. And then Cat Coil, she speaks up and she says, it's the pussy power hat. And we're like, oh my God, that's it, that's <laughs> it. And it's like, it just all came together. And I'm so glad you asked that question because sometimes it's hard for me to talk about in that, to convey how intentional it was, but also how lucky it was. Mm-hmm. It's like, we really thought through every detail, mm-hmm. but we were also so lucky and blessed that it's like, oh my gosh, cat ears are easy to make. Oh wait, this, yeah. this name is working right. out. And of course, like the pussy hat, the name uh, really worked because it had a charge to right, it. Yeah. And it did relate to Trump and that his recently comments on the Access Hollywood tape where he says, like, grab him by the pussy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a good way to relate to it. But just like the whole movement itself, like, yeah, it's about Trump. But it's about so much more than that. It's mm-hmm. about women's rights and women's respect. I actually had a follow-up question to that. I feel like language is something that drives a lot of thinking or how we think in society. I agree. Right. If you think about it, like history is his story. Mm-hmm. Mankind is mankind. But or like masterpiece versus like mistress piece. So, right. Yeah. No, exactly. And so I feel like male privilege is embedded not just in our system of thought, but in the language that we use. So some people say the word bitch should go the way of like the n-word where women can use that their discretion but not men because it carries with it centuries of repression so do you feel the same way about the word pussy do you feel like women can only use it or can you feel discomfort when men use the word pussy because of this movement because of this project and how women are sort of you know taking the word back for ourselves I know exactly what you're talking about. A lot of men ask me this, like, am I allowed to say the word pussy? Like, as if, like, yeah, everyone has to go through me, like, and I can (laughs) say yes or no. Um, I really appreciate when men use, when anyone uses the the word pussy hat. I also think, like, with so much um, tone and context mean a lot. 
how, yeah, how are you using that word, right? Mm-hmm. There's a book I uh, talk about in my book, like very meta. It's her, uh, her name is um, Regina Thomas Howard. She wrote a book called Pussy. Mm-hmm. And for her, pussy means um, like the feminine life force, you know, divine feminine. It's like that womanly intuition that we all have. That you don't, by the way, need a literal like vagina and uterus and vulva to um, have or explore. So for me, that's what pussy means. But for a lot of people, pussy means um, a weak person, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I really want to take that out of, uh, similar to the N-word, right? Right. Um, Like, I think it depends how you use it. Mm -hmm. And I think like with like a lot of language change, um, it can take uh, some time. Not It doesn't have to take a ton of time, but I think sort of in phases, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the first phase, yeah, like I think probably women can use it and explore how they want to use it like i i have this a thing an exercise in my book i call pussy schedules because it's just about me like not over scheduling my day and instead just following my pussy like what does my pussy want to do today? <laughs> like you know and it's like it's really helpful for decisions because it's like i don't know does my pussy want to do it like you know um the power to your pussy yeah you. exactly i don't know i think Probably for a little bit, it's going to be like a, a woman's word um, or like a female identifying person's word. But we're not there yet. But, you know, um, in order to get there, like no matter where you fall on the spectrum, um, like the feminine has to be way more respected because we talk about feminism, right? And it's like, oh, women's rights. Mm-hmm. But really, like it's the feminine, the femininity that is being disrespected in mm-hmm. all of us, men, women in between right Mm -hmm. so anyway I think that like as pussy grows to mean something more about like feminine divine intuition like probably all people can use that word Mm -hmm. yeah it's really about the intention behind it Mm -hmm. how you use the word Mm -hmm. yeah So can you share a little bit about um, yourself, maybe where you grew up, your cultural background? So I know in your book you said you're half Korean, um, half Chinese, and that you grew up in a sort of tiger mom household. So myself, Janet, and Mel, we also grew up in fairly traditional Asian households. And our, our parents have always encouraged us to like put our head down, work hard, not disrupt the patriarchy. <laughs> and here you are like stirring up controversy, having a voice, and speaking out against men, yeah. which for if that were me, my parents would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> right? So what do your parents actually like think about this? You know, it's interesting. I think I kind of gave my parents boot camp um, when I decided to become a screenwriter because they went through all this already with like, oh my God, you're going to be what? Mm-hmm, you know? Yeah. And so when I started doing the pussy hat, it was a little bit like it wasn't their first rodeo, you know? Um, and it wasn't mine either. Uh, I think it was easier for me to be an activist or become an activist in the last couple of years because about 10 years ago, I went against what my loved ones wanted for me. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted me to be safe. They wanted me to um, be pre-med or... Um, something right and I and when I went against what they wanted for me that was really hard yeah and so you know fast forward 10 years I'm like 29 years old and I have this idea for the pussy hat and at that point it's like well I think being an activist is like you have to go against what a lot of people think Mm -hmm. sometimes and because I'd already done that with people I love it was so easy to do that against like the alt-right and Trump because you know these are people who don't care about me it's like well yeah I can speak up I mean, I would say I was like such the cliche Asian American kid. Mm-hmm. I was a black belt in Taekwondo. I took piano. Um, I got like straight A's, and um, I went to Troy High School in um, oh my Orange County. Yeah, so um, I don't know what that means. you get tested into the high oh. school. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a public magnet school. Okay. Um, I think it's actually, it's, they're responsible for this thing called bright flight. Do you know what that is? No. So, you know, white flight is when like minorities move in and like white people leave. Uh Bright flight is like, so it's a public school, 
right? And you had to test to get in. And they mm-hmm. literally, like, steal, like, the brightest kids from all the surrounding districts oh. and gather them. I actually like, went to a school like that, too, in Boston. Boston yeah. Boston <laughs> schools, you had to test in to get in. And, yeah. like, how many of those, like, test people testing in were Asian, right? Like, a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was a really um, pressure cooker high school experience. Mm-hmm. I went to an Ivy League Seven Sisters school in New York. I went to Barnard College of Columbia University. And when I was there, I was supposed to be pre, or I was pre-med. And I thought I was making these choices on my own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my parents are like the ultimate tiger mom and dad in that they made me think I was choosing it. It was like Jedi mm. level, like <laughs> tiger mom, right? Where I was like, yeah, no, I, I want the best for myself. I'm going to be pre-med. I'm really smart and I can handle this. And the whole idea was I would be pre-med just in case. The idea being like, I'm going to explore other things, mm-hmm. but, you know, just to be safe, I'm going to def- be take all my pre-med courses. So if I don't find something that really fits, I'll have it ready to go. Mm-hmm. But what I found was that being pre-med just in case, there's no such thing. You're, you're right. just pre-med, yeah, you're like, right. you know, and I didn't it's have any, much work, yeah. right, and I didn't have any time to explore outside mm-hmm. of that. So yeah. my sophomore year, when it's time to declare your major, mm-hmm. um, I called up my parents. I remember, like, really, like, bolstering myself. Like, okay, Krista, you can do this. Like, I close the door to my dorm room, and, like, I make a quiet space for myself, and I call them. I'm going to tell them I'm not going to be pre-med, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so they're both on the phone. I tell them, and they're like, that's okay. I'm like, what? Yeah. I was like, yeah, right? No, I was like, what? Uh, Well, here's here's the thing. They were like, you can be pre-law instead. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, oh my God. And I actually was. I actually took the LSAT and everything because oh I was my like, gosh, you know. Really? Yeah, I got a 98th percentile, just wow. saying. Um, <laughs> I remember the day it expired too because it expires five years after you take it. I'm like, I guess that's really not happening anymore. <laughs> like, you talk about your background. I think a lot of our listeners can relate because we kind of grew up with that tiger mom or these Asian American expectations on us. For me personally, I feel like in my family, we never talked about American politics. I was never educated on it. We talked about like Taiwanese politics, some Taiwanese, but like how did you get involved in like activism and politics and like how can our listeners get, I guess, more engaged with that world? Um, well, I think as a broad stroke thing is that, first of all, like anything is learnable, like everything is figure outable. Like, I wanted to be a part of this like humorous comedy writing community and like I bought a book that was like how to be funny even if you're not (laughs) yeah like but you know but it's like that kind of like beginner's mindset of just like it's okay to be a beginner whether Mm -hmm. it's politics or humor or like even frankly like dressing well like like stylishly I was like it seems like sometimes like you're either born with it Mm -hmm. or you're not and that's not true Mm -hmm. like all these things people learned it and so same with politics I feel like we're all so smart I mean that it's not like about like oh do you know enough about the issues or not Uh, because I think being political is like yes you need to know the issues but you also like a big part of being considered political is speaking up about the issues Mm -hmm. so really like I think what you're asking me Mel isn't like how do I become more political it's like no you already are political it's like how do I get the confidence though to speak up about what I believe in yeah or how do I take the time to like really have confidence in myself to know I can come up with my own opinion about this Mm -hmm. right I think that's what my book really goes into because I didn't consider myself political for a long time like you know um, and I think a lot of people didn't, actually, until the uh, November 2016 election. I will say, though, I think I've always felt, like, annoyed that women didn't get their due, but I didn't really have, like, an outlet for it, right? So I talk about this in my book a bit, but um, it's kind of like one of my Me Too stories in a way. Like, in 2016, like, spring, Los Angeles Metro finally connected Santa Monica and LA, downtown LA. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was a big deal on that weekend. Everyone was writing it like for free and it was mm-hmm. like very celebratory. I, I ride that train and this guy in the car starts masturbating at me. What? And, yeah. Okay. Like I could like, that's a whole nother podcast. I won't feel like saying like, I, you know, I didn't feel safe. Right. Yeah. And then as I got out of the car at my stop, this other man, like totally different scenario now, like starts following me and blocking my exits 
he never touches me, but he's always like, if I go this way, he's like blocking mm. that exit and so on, right? And talking to me the whole time about uh, how he's going to take me to this motel room, what he's going to do to me and all this. And uh, like, by the way, here I am trying to be like frugal and save money. And I'm like, oh my God, like I have to call Lyft right now. And I literally had to close the door on this guy. Like he was like about to come into the car with me. I was like, mm-hmm. damn, oh you know? And yeah. So I get home and I'm just really, um, I mean, so many emotions, right? I'm yeah. like, angry I feel violated I feel sad and you know women are often accused of being like oh too emotional right which is a whole nother mm-hmm. thing like men are so emotional seriously yeah. but uh <laughs> and uh but I remember thinking like oh people what if people don't listen to me because you know of all these emotions mm. and then it hit me that all right for me to get home safely that night it would have cost me twenty dollars right yeah. had I just gotten a lift from the very beginning but for a man to get home safely, it would have cost him $2. And like, never mind how I feel, how you feel, like just looking at those numbers, like mm-hmm. how is that fair, right? right? And that was the first night I, I didn't know what to do. I wanted to do something. And I like opened my computer and went to the Hillary Clinton website and just like donated money. I was like, I don't stand for this anymore. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. from the, so I donated my money to her. I also... Um, started campaigning for her like mm-hmm. first locally and then I flew out to Ohio you connected a personal experience yeah. I connected a personal to, yeah. experience exactly and when we were canvassing in Ohio I was scared I was like oh my god I don't know enough about the issues I certainly don't know mm-hmm. enough about like local Ohio issues mm-hmm. and what they said to us like when they trained us and such was that like just make it personal because mm-hmm. that's real. Like you, you know, that's authentic yeah. and it's it's the truth mm-hmm. and it's valid. The personal is political for sure. So it's about getting more confidence, but it's also about a shift in your mind of like actually valuing your life mm-hmm. and and understanding that it's worth fighting for. Because um, I think too often, especially um, immigrants and children of immigrants, are like well, who would care about my little issue here? Like, or my commute, for example, like, you know? But like, some people are like, oh my God, this commute's horrible. What's my local politician doing about it, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't think that way. We're like, oh, gotta suck it up, you know? We're accustomed to like bending to rules versus knowing that we can set the rules. Yeah, or like knowing that we're a part of making the rules in the Mm -hmm. first place, you know? I think too often we just accept what's like, oh, this is the way things are, when it's like, no, actually, we all have a part in making things the way they are. I think, Chrissy, you brought up a good point, how like we should just research. All these resources are at the tip of our hands. But I think as an Asian American, like a lot of us feel like that's not an option for us because we're not taught to like be proactive and like research these topics. Even for me, like I, I don't even know where to begin. Like I'm so intimidated. What do I even Google? Like what yeah. I don't like what do I look at? I don't I don't know. And I think Asian Americans, we're awesome and but we're Asian Americans are taught how to play a game, right? But we're not taught how to make games. Okay, so for example, grades, right? Yeah. It's like how do I and my kids get the best grades ever, mm-hmm. right? But we don't realize are grades even important? Are there other things? It's like, no, we just get so consumed. And it's like in that way we're like athletes of the mind right we're really good at that Mm -hmm. but we get too caught up in it sometimes that we forget that wait how is this game actually affecting our well-being um, ourselves as a community we just get so competitive right Um, another example is like saving money like Mm -hmm. I think frugality is like a cliche of Asian American people but that in itself is a game like how can I save the most money right Mm -hmm. and even in your so like talking about grades or money it's like what is the point of doing that right like I'm Mm -hmm. getting good grades in order to and then is there another way to do that so it'd be like reframing the rules exactly I think as a community as Asian Americans most of us is like get the pretty good job like wear the basic clothes just get by in London right because you don't want to be someone that's controversial to exactly whatever is out there because I guess we're taught to just you know again put our heads down and work and do good and get good jobs get good pay and help out the family and then that's like a successful life the game is optional it's always optional asian americans especially get caught in this haze of like it's not an option it's the only thing only way you actually bring up a really good point in your book about the weapon versus the mm. warrior yeah right? so yeah, as- asian americans are such good weapons but we, yeah. we don't let ourselves be warriors right yeah. so for our listeners the weapon is someone who's utilized right so you work for a company you're super skilled like the best performer of 
whatever it is, you're the best person for someone else. When you're the weapon, you're not the warrior who's actually trying to like dictate your own future and like investing in your own future. You're doing it for someone else. Right. And yeah. I think it's like, it's really tantalizing because it's like, okay, if I, if I ask any of you three, like, do you want to be objectified? You're like, no, like I'm too smart for that. Right. And we know that we don't want to be objectified. We know we don't want to be sexually objectified, but we're allowing ourselves to become utility objects. And we mm-hmm. don't even realize. It. And why is because they sell it to us really well. They're like, they're not like, oh, do you want to be an object? It's like, do you want to be this amazing weapon? Mm-hmm. Like you'd be so powerful. You'd be so like, everyone would want to work with you. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and I think our parents, our Asian American parents are teaching us to be amazing weapons. Right. Right. But really like true power lies in being the warrior but it's scarier because a weapon can never be wrong right you're able to be perfect as a weapon but you don't Mm -hmm. make choices as a weapon someone else Mm -hmm. uses you and they make choices of how to use you right but when you make choices of how to use you sometimes you might be wrong right or you're gonna make mistakes and you're you're gonna have to learn from them and that's super scary Mm -hmm. like so there's safety in being a weapon Mm -hmm. versus a warrior so yeah so we have a lot of our listeners who write in and ask us they don't say like how do you help me become a warrior but they do ask questions about like so i'm kind of like stuck in this job and it's like you know medical school or like you know in lawyers or whatever it is right very like almost like standard asian jobs that your parents (laughs) expect for you and they always ask us, like, how do you guys, you know, find these creative projects, passion projects that you do? Like, essentially, how do you become a warrior for yourself, right? So I guess if you were to give our listeners maybe, like, one or two tips on yeah. how to, like, get to that path, that'd be great. <laughs> um, so I think all of my advice and exercises kind of fall into, like, two categories, zooming in or zooming out. So we could start off with zooming out. Like, if you don't know what you want, you could zoom out. And just look at your entire life. Just imagine it, like all the possibilities. And maybe even like write a eulogy for yourself. This is kind of dark, but it's really fun. You know, you could write, Krista Sa was a, you know, it's like, like you know, yeah. she, she passed away on this day and like this is her life and so on. Because there's this whole idea of, um, you know, I didn't make this up, of not living for your resume, but for your eulogy, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're not sure what you want to do, what step to take, think really big and think about your whole life and what do you want to be remembered for Mm. in that life? So like if you're a lawyer now, do you want to be remembered for like, and then she went to an even bigger law firm. Like that's not going to end up in your eulogy. Like you know what I mean? Instead, it's like, do you want to be known for like philanthropy in your local area? Do you want to be known for knitting people like funny gifts or sending cards to like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like these special stories that come up and become like really unique because it's really you. The other thing I talk about, um, so that's like a zoom out type Mm -hmm. of exercise and I have them in my book too, but a zooming in type of exercise is like the Midas touch, I call it, where you make a list of everything you touch in a day, like everything. So you wake up and it's like, okay, I just touched my pillow, my sheets. I like get out of bed and my feet touch this rug I have there. And then I walk over and I touch the toothbrush and whatever, like, you know, so you just make this list. It could be like a hundred or 200 mm-hmm. things, right? Um, but then like really drill down. This is about zooming in, right? Of How did that make me feel? And you could start improving your life in these small 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 ways but the reason why I talk talk about zooming in is that um, I think it's really important to know how you feel about specific things because then you know what you want and then you know what to go after right mm-hmm. and I think it, it gets you really clear like for example maybe you think that you love your job <laughs> right um, but seriously do you like when you turn in something do you love the moment you click send um does that feel good like Mm -hmm. in your body Mm -hmm. Uh, when you see your coworkers in the morning are you like yay or are you like oh you know (laughs) like and so because those that's actually what your job is made of all these tiny tiny moments right right? right. we had it side question because yeah. me and Helen are talking about this actually on the way to this recording. We're like, we're weapons. We're not warriors. I think it's really difficult when you work at corporate nine to five because you're working someone else's like, I'm, I'm doing something for like my CEO or whatever, right? But how do you become warriors at a corporate job? I guess right. the question is also like, we need good weapons to be utilized, right? Like warriors need weapons. People need to be mm. weapons as well. 
right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the way when I read that section of your book, the way I thought about it was like the main difference between a weapon and a warrior is that a warrior knows why they're doing something, yeah, right? And the thing true. they're doing is like serving that. So I feel like even if you are working, like the same thing in the same job, someone could be a weapon and someone else could be a warrior. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing like a corporate job and I really don't like it, it's, it's disconnected from what I want. But if I know exactly why I'm at that job, it's to feed my family, it's to pay my mortgage. Isn't that kind of being a warrior in the same thing? So I think so, yeah, because then you're choosing. Again, mm-hmm. the women's right to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, I have an exercise in my book. Um, it's like a language thing where instead of saying have to, you say I choose, choose to. to. Mm-hmm. I like that. So part. it's like, um, so maybe someone's writing in and it's like, I don't know, like I'm not, I don't really like my job. I have to go in every day at seven and do it's like, you choose to go in at seven, <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> so I know we've been talking um, sort of into context of Asian Americans, because we are all Asian American yeah. women here. Um, and there's a term that's going around called intersectional feminism, which is essentially the, the idea that feminism is told through the perspective of maybe more of a white woman. So if you think about Sheryl Sandberg's uh, book, Lean In, it does have this haze of white privilege to it, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess as a woman of color... Are you quoting my book? I am. Yeah, yeah chapter, the, the intro. Haze. Yeah, the haze. <laughs> Lifting the haze. So as a woman of color, how do you feel like your efforts as an Asian woman has been different from other women feminists who are white? Yeah, I think Asian Americans, it's, it's interesting because... Our experience is different from a white feminist, but it's also different from a black feminist. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I think it's really interesting that my good friend Milk, who is a singer-songwriter, she just got signed to Atlantic, her EP came out, and she actually blurred my book. So her song, Quiet, went viral at Mm -hmm. the march. Um, She was on the Samantha Bee show singing it, um, and it was called the Unofficial Anthem of the Women's March. And guess what? Like, Krista Suh, her pussy hat, became the unofficial, like, symbol of the march, right? The symbol Mm. of the movement. Milk's uh, real name is Connie Lim. Mm. And she's Asian-American. She's Chinese-American. I'm Chinese-Korean-American. Asian-Americans came up with the biggest creative contributions, like, that are widely recognized, right, for the women's movement. And no one talks about it. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, guess what? They're like Asian women are there, like you know, right, like right. and and they're contributing in this really amazing way. Right. And um, and I remember like you know in the first like sort of storm of interviews, like kind of mentioning it here and there, and no one really like wanted to run with that, you know, mm-hmm. um, which I found really interesting. And I was like, is it the system or is it because like the the audience isn't calling for stories like that? Um, is it both? Uh, but I do think that Asian American women have a double whammy of being quiet mm-hmm. of, or being expected to be quiet. Mm-hmm. And so we have to work doubly hard to get over that and create like a really safe environment for us to mm-hmm. speak up. Right, right. We're considered like white minority, like a, a model oh, yeah. minority, right. like when it suits, you know, the patriarchy basically Mm -hmm. and we're considered like people of color when it suits us sort of like we get to get they sort of fit us in as needed Mm -hmm. so um there's been some controversy with the hat from the left actually so um having to intersectionalism which is like oh the hat is the pussy hat is pink and thus is only about white women right because it's like and that um, never even occurred to me that like oh like like and the vulva. The vulva. Yeah, yeah. Like, apparently, I didn't real, I didn't know this. Or mm-hmm. I, it was on the forefront of my mind that, like, oh, women's, white women's vulvas are apparently pink. And thus, like, and the thing is, like, we're not wearing vaginas on our heads. Right. They're yeah. cat ears. Yeah. But people are like, oh, that means the pussy hat is really um, white and anti-people mm-hmm. of color. I'm like, uh, hello. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> That's going deep just to, like, stir up some... Right, right. And, you know, the thing is, from day one, day zero, it was never about flesh color, right? Like, and as, like, Mm -hmm. I've talked about earlier. um, But it occurred to me that, like, oh, like, the controversy isn't so much that they think the pussy hat is wrong. It's just that the pussy hat has suddenly become, to some people, a symbol of 
white feminism and what's wrong about mm. feminism, right? At first I was like, oh, like, I wanted people to stop using it that way. But I realized, like, you know what? Like, their criticism isn't about the pussy hat. It's about white feminism. And right. I share that criticism. Mm-hmm. And if they choose to use a symbol, this as a symbol of that, there's, A, there's nothing I could do about it. Like, when I put, like, a hat out or, like, um, a book out, I can't go around to every individual person and be like, Helen, did you understand exactly what I meant? And, like, you know, I can't, like, force people like that. And so everyone has their own interpretation. And I also think that it's a mistake to constantly, like, criticize how people are doing things um, where... Like, for example, like, the pussy hat people criticize us, like, why are you using pink? Do you use a more dignified color, you know? Like, um, don't protest that way. But I would mm-hmm. never go to Colin Kaepernick, who is um, a football player, and he's taking a knee during the national anthem. I would never go up to him and be like, Colin, don't protest that way. Football is sacred. Like, you know, it's like, I, I don't, you know, but, like, similarly, I just cannot go to someone with this grievance and say, like, don't protest that way. The pussy hat is sacred. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the pussy hat is magical, but it's not sacred. And I think it's language to be used. And right now, it's being used really effectively. I think, um, like, for example, someone um, put a pussy hat on a Harriet Tubman statue. And the black community, um, it, you know, there's a lot of discussion about it. And it was healthy discussion, even though it might sound angry or critical. But some people in the black community felt um, the pussy hat was co-opting um, a hero of their own movement, like mm. by doing that. And some people felt it was an inclusive gesture. Mm-hmm. And there is no right or wrong, which is can be kind of scary when you first enter politics. Because, like, especially as an Asian American, you're like, I want to do it the right way, and you're like, right. wait, if is there no right way? Fuck, like you know, yeah. like you know, and what that's really, behind, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, I think just accepting that there's no perfect way to do this to protest to be political to be active or, or even to be in solidarity I think to approach intersectionality yes we have to be more inclusive and and so forth but we also have to um lose perfectionism you know my book mm-hmm. is a lot about losing perfectionism in yourself but we also need to do that as a movement right right when people found out that it was you an Asian American woman who started this project how did they react um, especially non-Asian people? Well, it's two things. I think, first of all, a lot of people, they can't believe a person started it. White, mm-hmm. Asian, female, male. Mm-hmm. They're just like, wait, it came from somewhere? Like, you know, right. it would just... And I think, like, we forget that there's magic in our lives all the time because we think, like, oh, magic and movie magic stuff happens out there. My life is normal. I know normal people. I do normal things. No, you are an abnormal person doing abnormal things with abnormal friends. Like you, everyone's so interesting and magical, but we forget that. It's like mm. another version of the haze. I think uh, it just seems like this hat, it spread so much that it's hard to believe that it came out of one person's right. mind. But I'm really proud that I you know, came up with idea, channeled the idea, like however you want to say it. Um, but I don't think that's what makes me special. I think women, girls, people of color, everyone, we have great ideas all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But especially women, girls, and people of color, we are taught to talk ourselves out of those ideas, right? right? So so I think if I'm special at all, it's not because I had a great idea. We all have great ideas. It's that I chose to nurture my idea mm-hmm. instead of squelch it, instead of being like, oh, like that could never happen, or what if it fails, or like I don't have the experience for that. I was like, oh, let's just try it, right? And that's why I wrote a book not about so much about like, look at me, I'm so like, I, I wanted, I didn't want to write a book about the past in that way. I wanted to write a book for the present and for the future where give people tools to nurture mm. their own amazing, quote unquote, crazy ideas, mm. right? Because that's everywhere. Anyway, and, the, and I think, secondly, people are really like surprised because they assumed it was yeah, like a white woman activist. Um, what other? What else have I heard? Um, someone in New York uh, wanted to meet me um, and per- perhaps collaborate, and they were like, they were so blunt. They were like, "Yeah, we thought you would be an 
angry white lesbian with red spikes in your hair. I was like, oh, that's really specific. (laughs) Okay. Like, you know, a lot of people also like, you know, maybe like a more matronly older, like uh, white Mm -hmm. woman or something. But no, it was me. So, Krista, we do have a question for you, and I want to direct it towards Janet because she's our girl that's actively dating or semi-actively dating. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to step away from politics for a second, you mentioned in your book that you've dated a pretty wide age range of men, right? So you've dated <laughs> guys who are, like, younger than you and 22 at the time. You were probably, like, in your late 20s, I think. Yeah, you exactly. Yeah. And you all, you've also dated men who are, like, 55. Yeah. <laughs> So that's a that's like three gener not generation three decades. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Um, could you share with one us, of the guys like, I dated did become a grandfather? Like whoa, like, while you were dating him? <laughs> yeah. Wow. How long did you date him for? Um, just on and off a few years. Yeah. yeah. Like oh. what was the what was the appeal? I'm like very curious. Yeah. About this. You know the gilf. <laughs> um, I don't think the age itself was an appeal I think it was the fact that um it was his personality and I have to say like the okay so I went on a dating website a while ago and I was like well like this guy I dated I like him and he's like you know 20 plus years old he's like say 55 Mm -hmm. at the time right so I was like I'm gonna put my age range of like you know from 22 to 55 because like I've dated that I like them and great and then like the people I got in were, like, horrible. They looked like Santa Claus. I was like, <laughs> oh, I guess, like, the 55-year-old I dated was not, like, the typical Yeah, right. George Clooney of the group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, something like that. Yeah, so it's, like, yeah, actually, George Clooney's 55 or something like that. So, like, um, <laughs> I could see that. You see that, Mel? Yeah, he's hot. Dating a <laughs> George Clooney. Well, I have to say, I think there's also a bit of a blind spot thing where it's, like, when I see, like, a couple with a big age range, I'm like, ugh, gross. And then I, then I like, I like, we'll go on a date with a guy, and I'm like, oh, this is totally fine. Like, you yeah. know, so there's a little bit of like double standard selective thinking there, I think. But, you know, it's just really about like who I connect with, I think. Yeah. So was there, were there like personality things about that guy who was 55 that you also found in someone who was 22? Um, or like what, what maybe think of specifically of a younger guy you've dated and like what attracted you to him? Oh, he was, um, he was really cute. Um, (laughs) But also, I I guess with either extreme, I didn't realize how far they were for me. So, so there's that. They were both really funny and creative. And I think no matter what age, I think that youthful energy of exploring Mm. was both there. I will say, I think, like, I don't do so well with guys exactly my age. I feel like guys exactly my age aren't, like... Emotionally there? They aren't emotionally there. They're very, like, self-involved. They're very, like, uh, I mean, there's so so many, like, assumptions here, but you guys go with me. <laughs> yeah. um, but also, like, I think guys who are a lot older actually um, nicer to you on dates. They, like, like mm. or they know how to treat women. Yeah. Because they've dated around. I do feel like you're a bit of an old soul. How's the sex? Did you, <laughs> you beat me to a telly. <laughs> you don't have to answer, but I mean, one telly could. This one age have more endurance than the other, stamina, like, you know. Or do oh, they get it's back so pain funny. Easily, like, so. they, they're, like, they will tell you themselves, they're like, oh, like, the older guys are like, younger guys, they don't last this long. And the younger guys are like, older guys, like, they take forever to get back. But me, it's like two minutes. Like, yeah, like, so it's like they, they, they talk about it. I don't even have to. That um, is true. That is true. I've, uh, yeah, when I've dated I guess like a younger guy he was very focused on like the age difference Mm -hmm. and having to sell himself like he was compensating for that right and then when if a guy's like much older it's the same thing he feels like he has to compensate for that or like explain but (laughs) I love it it's like yeah they're trying to like win you over (laughs) (laughs) well also like I don't know I feel like there's a trend now um where like you see, I always thought Viagra was used by like older guys like 50s 60s 70s like that but, like, I see now, like, men in their, like, mid-late 30s and early 40s using Viagra oh, really? to give them, like, that extra, Do like... Do they, like, show ooh. you? They're like, I'm about to pop this pill, so get ready. <laughs> well, or... it's like kind of a mix between, like, guy friends and, like, people I'm dating. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, they're like, yeah, I take, like, a half to, like, help me or something. I was like, <laughs> wow. really? Like, and, but I've seen that happening more and more. 
Um, it's like steroid for the dick. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. But what's really funny is that when they get older, they don't see very well. And so they're like, oh, I can't read the. Oh, like, no. Yeah. <laughs> like that's this like really small medical. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> But that is, I think that's speaking to the state of dating culture, right? Where mm-hmm. you're const- if you're dating a bunch of people all the time, you're constantly trying to impress. Versus like in the past where you only dated, you're dating in like long-term relationships, there isn't this need to impress this person. So it's sad to me that guys are resorting to Viagra in order to like... Ma- it's sad, maintain- but I'm also like, finally, they like are caring. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's like, like this is so mean because it's better that like all of us get less neurotic about our looks. But it makes me feel like, oh, like... If women have to be this neurotic about looks, at least guys should join us. That's like, so you know? true. Like, That's so true. So you're doing something for me for once. This is great. <laughs> no, exactly. And I, by the way, not to make everything so serious, but like, I think the onus of birth control should fall on men and women, but it's mm. off, mostly on women. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we have to take, you know, we don't have to, but like, right. there's these like, to. Oh, choose to, <laughs> or like, the, but the choices offered aren't that many where right. you're like, okay, I can take these hormones to change my body. And then they don't even really develop male contraceptive pills. Right. Right. Or I know it's they're not funded. Right, it's right, exactly. Like there yeah. has been male contraceptives. And but also, like, did you read that same thing I did? Like Probably. this Danish study where they were trying the male contraceptive pill and men were reported feeling like yeah. really like I'm fatigued and bloated. Right bloated. Like, it was like this, monthly experience. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, oh. All right. Thank you, Krista, so much for joining us today. This was an amazing opportunity for us to get to know you. And for our listeners, you have so many gems that you offered us um, in this episode. Um, Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about where to find you online and what you're doing next? Thank you guys so much. I, like, had such a good time. I was so looking forward to this. And I love, like, reveling in my Asian-ness, actually. (laughs) Like, you know? It's the right place to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Um... So you can find me on kristasuh.com. So that's K-R-I-S-T-A-S-U-H.com. Um, and from there, you can follow me on um, Instagram at kristasuh. On Facebook, I'm Ms. Kristasuh. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, find me because I really would love to stay connected. And I Honestly, I would love to have more followers who are Asian American because I feel like when I wrote this book, DIY Rules for a WTF World, I'm on um, tour right now for it. I kind of wrote it for with you in mind, right? Like, or like the younger version of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the subtitles, How to Speak Up, Get Creative, and Change the World. So I'm putting out more like supplementary um, content for the book to like help people um, through. So that's uh, going to be on my website uh join my mailing list uh it's really fun i promise um, <laughs> and uh that's that's where to find me please come by all right thanks everyone for joining us krista is a super amazing inspirational abg mm-hmm. yeah. and we are so humbled to have had her on our podcast and we hope that you guys will go and check out her book diy rules for a wtf world um you can find it on her website kristasa.com um, or just any Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com. It's a great read and uh, we know she's done work that's like political in nature, but the book is very good for just if you are growing up and trying to figure out how to uh, tap into your creativity. And please write us at asianbosscrow.gmail.com. We're very curious. We want to hear what you guys think about this episode. Again, you could um, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and please subscribe to us on iTunes at abg-asianbossgirl. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.